0: thinking about Buddhism in modernity and modernist forms of Buddhist practice, mm-hmm. what we could call secular Buddhism. And that's, mm. let's just be clear about that. That is that which sides with a materialist kind of view of consciousness. Okay. And grounded in a kind of Darwinian theory. And, you know, more modern forms of Darwinian theory, right, so genetics okay. and whatever else. Mm. So when you really anal- when when people from that side really analyse what the human being is, you get a kind of biological narrative. Uh, It's a project of
1: naturalisation, in other words, yeah.
0: So, from that point of view, how would you respond to the claim that people that are engaging in Buddhist practice, from that point of view, Mm. are maybe bracketing out of Buddhism some of the most important elements of Buddhism? So you spoke before about nirvana, whether nirvana is possible or not. Mm, mm. My my answer to that is, I I don't know. Mm, It might mm. be, but you know, it's not something I've spent a great deal of time thinking about. But you can think about other Mm. things too within the Buddhist corpus. Um, Mm. So for example, within the context of Vajrayana, with there being Mm. actually accessible Buddhas Mm. and Bodhisattvas and deities Mm. and Yidams and Dhakas and Dakinis and all these kinds of things. Mm. Um, The notion of the Guru, again in Vajrayana, as mm. the actual locus of self-transformation, It's mm. the point where self-transformation is not actually possible without Guru, mm. mm. and on the level of the, how the human body and the human mind is conceived, the actuality of there being a subtle body, of there being chakras and channels mm. and winds mm. and so forth. Mm. The person involved in that materialist or secular form of Buddhism wants to bracket all of those things, Mm. and wants to bracket all of the more animistic or shamanistic elements of Buddhist view, which are very much operative in all traditional Buddhist cultures and mm. places. Mm. So the question of them would be, the question mm. is, why should all of that be traded for neuroscience plus Darwin plus humanism plus then aesthetics?
1: Yeah, I can I can see where that question is coming from. Um, Although I, I, again, I think as I sort of suggested earlier on, I think there mu- there, there's no reason why they're mutually exclusive. Um, although you have to look at each of them in turn, perhaps. I, it, again, it, it might be a bit of a false dichotomy. For me, the point might rather be that not all of that catalogue um, that you've sort of that you've offered carries the same quotient of of epistemic or causal sort of potency or force. It's not necessarily clear why the trade that you suggest need occur when many of its terms are not mutually exclusive. Many refer to epistemic regimes that are perfectly sound within their own range of reference. So Darwinism, humanism, or chakra theory or neuroscience clearly say things about those various domains that are relevant with those epistemic modalities and, and, and not vice versa. There are different levels and intentions of praxis and experience, and uh, which responds to these in non-dichotomous ways. And they are all still consistent with the possibility, for example, of an enlightened state, however dramatically revisionary that would prove to be for others of them. So we wouldn't expect every epistemic regime to speak authoritatively about, for example, the transferential potential and the Tower of the Guru's transmission of truth. Even though, again, that might be theoretically complementary with, for example, a scientific or, or psychologistic or or um, clinical, even um, experimental paradigm. You know, you know, there, there clearly is something psychologically going on with... Uh, the relate the cycles of rela- relations of a guru and students which i don't see um, any modernistic or modernist uh, paradigm disputing necessarily and nor is nirvana as a human potential precluded from other regions of either absolute for example scientific knowledge or theoretical perfectibility i don't think there's there's anything intrinsic about humanism or about you know neuroscience or cognitive behavioral therapy that rules out the possibility of nirvana although they might say that's you know extremely unusual Um, extremely uh, unlikely possibility. So by the same token is the existence of Yidams or other subtle system ontologies any self-evident guarantee any more than scientific posits are of the actual possibility of nirvana and the end of suffering? I don't see why Yidams themselves need be any more um, you know, um, uh, uh, productive of that than, than a scientific paradigm could be. So in other words, all these posits are more or less persuasive maps of the actual and possible that in many ways in many cases do not converge on the same epistemic object. and so are not in inherent conflict, although some might be. But then the most adequate means for gauging the truth of any given posit tends to win out in the larger picture of intellectual and religious history. Those that have the most traction of truth or value or function, and again, these serve quite different ends, are the ones we are still talking about. And those that fail to fall away. So, so you know, basically, yes, there might well be many dimensions of, 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 of a traditional pre-modern Buddhism which are very powerfully productive of, of interesting states for Buddhist practitioners. There are others that might not be. Um, I don't think there need be any kind of a priori rejection of any for, for, for any kind of um, ideological reason. Does that does that ring a bell to you or
0: I'm not sure if I'm completely convinced by what you're saying there. Um, right. you seem to be suggesting that secular Buddhism would not reject necessarily any of those things. And that they're not mutually exclusive. So you could adopt, for example, a neuroscience view of the brain or the mind Mm. And a Darwinian view of you know the biological processes and oh, the instincts and inclinations um, yeah. of the body,
1: as 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 a lot of Buddhist scientific researchers themselves have done, like namely Francisco Varela among others.
0: So you got you, you seem to have suggesting you can adopt all of that and not have any inherent conflict with some of those other more Buddhistic views. Like there's no necessary tension. Or contradiction between them.
1: Well look, I mean, let, let's be kind of clear. again, there's a certain amount of confusion here between what we could call um, you know culturally conditioned um, contingent phenomena uh, that belong essentially to what we'll will, will simply call a religious discourse. And Buddhist metaphysical philosophical propositions, okay. So if you're I used to live with a lot of Tibetan Buddhists and and Western Tibetan Buddhists in, in in on four continents, all over the world, in India, in America, in Europe, all over the place. You know, for example, one of the things we did in the monastery, we used to feed every night at dinner um some dough from our bread making to the nagas, okay? And we would do that and, and we would go and throw it into the river. Now I'm not. I'm not. I don't think that you're proposing that that is some kind of intrinsic element of a Buddhist paradigm necessarily. I would say that you would agree with me in saying that that's essentially a kind of a, a cultural um, item that belongs to Tibetan shamanistic, Tibetan animistic, um, folk religion. I don't know, I don't recall any Buddhist suttas that say that it's necessary to feed the Nagas, otherwise there will be karmic demerit. I don't think it's something that we need to put all of our, our, our kind of money on. I mean, sure, if you want to feed the Nagas, feed the Nagas. If you want to meditate with Yidam um, uh, projections of consciousness, then, then follow a tantric path. N- none of this... Is sort of I, I would say imperative to pursuing what you what you've somewhat reductively called a post-modernistic secular version of Buddhism. I mean, I, I don't I don't I just think that some of us will bother doing these things and others of us won't. So I don't think, but again, they're not intrinsically exclusive, right? They may just, not be
0: intrinsically exclusive, but I think practically speaking, mm-hmm. they are, there's more of a tension or contradiction between the two points of view than you might be allowing for. But that's
1: okay. I don't think that's a problem. I think that's where we're at. I think, I think that what you're expressing is the Heidegger we, we, we made earlier, which is this is the contingency of 21st century Western Buddhism. I mean, this is where it's at. These, these are necessary things. They're not things that we try to smooth over or do away with. They're, they're, they are the productive points of friction in the dialectic. Of understanding an ancient metaphysics, along with some of its cultural uh, accoutrements, with the particular status of Western consciousness in the 21st century, and that's fine. I mean, for me, it's not a problem. For me, it's the it's the juice of the thing, right? And I, I think I think you 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 force things into a crusty bed when you when you when we assume that we need to be doing one or the other. I, again, I, I reject the dichotomy. I
0: reject the dichotomy. Well, I, and I, I think want to that deserve it because the very the very logic of holding a certain number of things as cultural accretions and calling them mm. religious folk or belonging to some kind of religious folk tradition. But
1: clearly some of them are. I mean, clearly some of them are. Surely you agree with that. I mean, Nagarjuna doesn't go on and on about, about a lot of traditional uh, Tibetan folk religious beliefs. The Buddha doesn't. Right? Karma is understood very, very differently across the Buddhist spectrum. I mean, the Theravadans don't think about karma in the way that Mongolian Buddhists do. But
0: all across right. all the different traditions, in all of the Shastras, and all of the Suttas and Sutras, there is always a cosmology of different realms of existence. Now, as a, Yeah, and they're rel-
1: interpreted in different, different ways. Some of them interpret them as metaph- metaphors, others interpret them as, as, as reified objects. I don't right? think I don't so. Think.
0: I think the interpretation of them as pure metaphor <clears throat> is very much a, uh, a late modern, let's just call it Western construction as a way of being able to bracket things which actually don't fit with a kind of more scientific it, it, worldview.
1: It, it, it might well be, that are you making a normative point about that being a bad thing or not? I'm, I'm not saying it's necessarily well, what, a bad thing, I'm even trying, if it's
0: true. What I'm trying to point out is that you're trying to argue that it's not intrinsic to what Buddhism is actually, well, what is necessary to kind of a successful, efficacious Buddhist practice. And that's certainly a position that I held for a lot of my life. I, I,
1: no, no, I, I, I'm sorry. It depends what you're doing. If you're doing what is tantra, of course you need to need to take on board and, and you know and engage in a creative and positive way. You know, and, and have a relationship with a guru and so on and so forth. I'm not rejecting that at all. I'm just saying that I think it, it is really much more of a, a diverse, pluralistic kind of um, field uh, of 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 epistemic engagement and access. Than any, than any imperative view, right? I just don't, I mean, if you're doing Vipassana, right, which is, I would say, much more my own um, and, or Zogchen type practice, then I don't think you don't are at the centre of that. Right? I don't think that's a controversial state.
0: No, not at all. I, I'm all for pluralism, and I'm not at all attempting mm-hmm. to negate the kind of virtues or the mm-hmm. senses of liberation that might emerge from mm-hmm. kind of secular yeah. Buddhism. But mm-hmm. what I'm trying mm-hmm. to question... What might be lost in lopping off?
1: Well, why don't we get to brass tax? And, and look, I'm taking your question on board now fully. Okay, let, let's get to brass tax and say, okay, let's lop off karma. Let's lop off rebirth. And there are people that do that. Now, that's Buddhist modernism. Okay, that's contemporary 21st century. Stephen Batchelor has come out very clearly as a Buddhist and said, look, I, I think karma and rebirth are really just um, sorts of heuristic ideas. They help us engage on the path of an aspirational um, metaphysics, and um, maybe even the itself is a metaphor or a symbol. Okay. Now that's, that to me is getting to the crux of your question, and I want to hear what you think about that. If we lock off karma and we lock off rebirth, what happens to your understanding of Buddhism?
0: Well, let me start with karma. Okay. The sense in which karma is some kind of epistemically inaccessible or transcendent teaching or view of things, I think is completely ridiculous. Well, that's how Buddhism itself frames it. In that karma, going back to you know the, the actual meaning of the term, it is just action, and of course there is action.
1: Now, well, that's not, it's also action and its consequences. Yeah, I mean, that's really well. And
0: if one wants to deny that one can undertake actions without consequences, that's that's to me a ludicrous philosophical position because yeah, but th- actions actions that's not what
1: that's not the issue. The issue is what what are the consequences and whether they. Deterministic consequences or not? Well, That's I don't the think the Buddhists so argue
0: that consequences are deterministic, or that they're easily that even that findable. In fact, if you look at that, I mean, this is what I think is great about the Madhyamaka. They're kind of saying actions have consequences, there is causation, but it's bloody complex, and we can't always tell you exactly what's going to happen. So denying denying that to me seems to be the very pinnacle of idiocy. But again,
1: I, again, I think you're misplacing the issue. It's not that anyone's denying that. We hear again and again and again that it's complex, and that in fact, particularly in the field of ethics, I might say, and that it's so complex in, in so many cases that ultimately it is inaccessible knowledge, and that you do have to have certain high realizations to even begin to consider it as such, right? That's the issue. So it's not that it's not metaphysically possible. Anything's logically possible, of course it's possible. It might even be true. But if it's so complex then that, that we can never even at pretty high levels of intellection even begin to justify certain kinds of claims, then what do we we can't really do anything. I'm not saying that it's not true. I'm saying that it's it's epistemically vacant.
0: Well, you're saying, we can't, that Bad- we can't you're do sorry, sorry Martin, but you're saying that bachelor asserts that it's not true and I was responding to that. And the response really is, well, you're not going to okay. get a peach tree out of an orange seed. End of story. If you want to, you know, work out a whole system of agriculture, Mm -hmm. you know, it's going to get more complex, sure. But at the end of the day, the logic of karma is actually rather a practical affair. And it's one that's almost impossible to deny if you, you know, if you're just living in the world. You touch things, you get that are hot, you get burnt.
1: Yeah, but okay. Let's let's be a little bit more precise about this. I would I would throw out to you the the notion that there are basically two metaphysical versions of karma. There's a weak version and there's a strong version, and I would say that the weak version is the kind of empirical, this worldly. Um, let's let's say within a single lifetime, psychologically percipient, um and and observational. Capacity to see that certain kinds of effects follow from certain kinds of causes and as you say it might not even be deterministic Although let's be clear that Buddhism is deterministic about the kinds of effects that come from certain kinds of causes It says that this will definitely happen if this if this if x occurs and and Let's say that that Empirical project of karma is perfectly legitimate. I think it is. I don't think there's any problem with that I think we all experience that in, in lived life. We could almost call it a form of practical wisdom, okay? It fits in a lot with an Aristotelian virtue ethics and phrenesis and all the rest of it the strong version of karma is questionable and it says that for me it's questionable and I'm, I'm interested in your, your, your view on that. It says that there are certain kinds of effects that that will definitely and certainly have uh, causes, uh, consequences in, in, in spatio-temporal distant, uh future events that are absolutely impossible to be determined by this worldly um, ordinary being consciousness and yet they are completely you know um of that they're completely constitutive of not just physical not just mental intersubjective reality but physical reality such that for example um the people who were killed in the earthquakes of china tibet uh, some years ago and i've heard this from a, a, a tibetan geshi's mouth himself um, were were experiencing the consequences of bad actions in previous lifetimes and the people in the village, literally 15 kilometers down the way, did not die in those earthquakes because they didn't have the same karmic kind of quotient to do so. Now that's a strong, that's a strong metaphysical claim. Now you can think that that's true. I can think it's true too. But neither of us have any way of knowing at all whether it is, right? And I don't, I don't ultimately see what what fundamental, um, you know, fundamental satiriological benefit that's going to have for either of us. Frankly, I think it's magical thinking. I think that it's essentially a product of centuries of cultural, folk, religious, soteriological belief, as we have in Christianity, as we have in Islam, as we have in Hinduism. I mean, you know, do we do we believe in out of faith the Hindu caste system just because it's logically possible? Right? These are these are these are serious problems, and and they can have really strong, um, you know, negative consequences down the line. And if we're not responsible about them now, then when will we be? Well,
0: I, I take your point there. I think when you get to a more elevated level or analysis of karma, then, I mean, I don't take your point all the way. I take it to the point to the extent that when there are claims made about events happening or effects being um, connected to causes in some kind of way, then if one is kind of guessing or in, merely imputing, or making up yeah. some kind of fictional narrative about the way these things hang together, mm. then we're in the realm of catastrophic religious belief, no doubt, and that's a problem, especially when you know there's a kind of uh, normative pressure or moral pressure around all of that. So this is a sense in which it might all operate as a way to kind of make people more moral or you know turn them into more just human beings because they fear the law of karma affecting them.
1: Or, indeed, turn them into unthinking morons who aren't capable of thinking for themselves.
0: So, okay, so there's that problem there, which is, um, let's say, a purely fictional or merely imputed claim about karma. Which is taken to be literal truth. Which is taken to be literal truth. Okay. And there are certainly those sorts of things going on in Buddhist literature. Um,
1: And Buddhist practice, from my own experience, of, of being... 10 10 years all over the world in a a Tibetan Buddhist institution.
0: Sure. But then let me give you some other thing to contemplate on that same level. Yeah. And it it hinges on this notion of an epistemic vantage point which actually does see more deeply and more penetratively the relationship between what's called the relationships of causation. Mm. I think it's possible that some people do gain greater insight Mm. into the logic of causation Mm. and therefore can make statements about it based on that insight which Mm. have greater standing epistemic standing than Mm. the merely imputed version Mm. now unless you're the person with that insight Mm. then you're going to be trapped on some level of mere belief in any case Mm. right you Mm. either believe Mm. it or you don't believe it Mm, mm. The question is uh, whether it's possible for a person to gain more insight into the machinations of causation. And I think it is possible. I think, I think, we've, both, that, I think we've both agreed on that. It more than that, I think that is actually the pinnacle insight of the Buddha. Right. It's actually essential to his very logic of liberation. What he gained insight to in his awakening was insight mm. into the machinations of causation. So this is what dependent origination really means. Sure, sure. So if we want to wipe that out and say, actually, it's not possible for anyone to mm. gain those more deeper, more penetrative analyses of dependent origination and karma, Yeah. in my view, what that does is actually, you're basically saying, well, Buddhism is inherently false. That's really the move. And that's quite a legitimate move, but one needs to be clear, that's the move one is making.
1: Yeah, I, I think you're perfectly correct about that. I, I, I couldn't agree with you more. Um, and, and if someone like bachelor is doing that, then yes, I think that your, your critique is, is perfectly valid. But let's, let's be clear that it wasn't really a question of rejecting the possibility of it. The question is whether it's actually useful to us um, and, and indeed whether it is ultimately something that people can, can take into their own cognitive activity as well. Um, And again, I think that our discussion has at least let us understand that if we are going to keep karma, which I think we do have to and should on some level, then we have to be clear about what version of karma it is. And, you know, you seem to be saying that both the weak and the strong versions are valid. And I would say that the weak version is actually epistemically useful to us and that the strong version is, of course, possible, but basically epistemically uh, theoretical. Okay, And I think that's what we have to be honest about, no?
0: Yeah, look, there's... The strong one should come with an asterisk for sure and one should be very right. careful what? around I think that's, yeah, okay, I'm glad that clarify clarified. But the that. moral, it seems to me, the moral implication of it is one proceeds rather more cautiously than yeah. one otherwise might. And yeah. if you think about the way, for example, humans have shifted in their understanding of ecological dependence, the way human mm. actions have affected the broader environment, mm. well, I think we can see with more penetrative insight than we used to that there's the machinations of causation there actually run far more deeply, like the burning all this fossil fuel, for example, has produced this kind of consequence of catastrophic climate change.
1: Now, yes, you... but, let, but let, let, let's again, again, we have to distinguish between a, a, a purely empirical and even scientifically observable uh, sense of causation and the kind of very kind of bold metaphysical proposals of mental causation vis-a-vis physical phenomena. So my own guru ten years ago when or a few years ago during the Kathmandu earthquakes recommended that if we want to obviate or prevent another following earthquake in Kathmandu, then we all have to recite a few million recitations of the Surangama Sutra, for example. Now, it's one thing to say that yeah, you know, we can we can cash out causation and karma in these physical terms. And then to say that there is actually a large-scale, you know, mental causation vis-a-vis the physical phenomena that is also going on. I mean, are you honestly telling me that you're going to buy that? And not, not just as a logical posit. Of course it's logically possible. I'm saying, in what sense is it, is it really going to be useful to you to say that you can prevent the following earthquake that is going to occur by reciting a few
0: million sutras well,
1: in, in a, in a two-week
0: period? Five years ago, I'd be like, yeah, no way. I had not signed up to that at all. In my current frame, uh, and it's a subject to change, I would say, well, the answer to that depends on the quality of the Guru's realisation. If the Guru is, is, again, going back to that distinction I made between a merely imputed sense of causation, where mm-hmm. there's some kind of fiction taking place, and that that advice would you know, be involving that kind of fiction, then yeah, that's terrible and should be dispensed with. But I would leave open the possibility that the guru actually does have some kind of deeper insight into the machinations, and somehow or other, in a way completely mysterious to me, um, that might be advice that works. No, but so, but no, but the
1: the, the the critical point about the advice is that he's asking us, ordinary mortal, unenlightened beings with relatively standard intellectual access to these things, to to perform certain actions that even on a purely relative, uh, unenlightened level, are going to have determinate effects, namely the prevention of another earthquake in Kathmandu, tens of thousands of kilometers away. That's the posit. That's the posit. I mean, you know, I mean, let's grant that he is a highly realized being of some kind. You know, that might well be true. The posit is that our actions, the recitations, the verbal recitations of sound, of phonemes, is going to have this hard metaphysical effect on the architectonic structure of the geology of, 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 of Nepal. That's the proposition, Toby.
0: Framed like that, it sounds like an incoherent response, right?
1: But well, well, well I mean, this is this is the thing. I mean, I mean, this is this is, this is the gauntlet that we're thrown, right? The question is, what? How do we cash it out? See, if, if we are absolute idealists, and we say that in fact, yeah, sure, earthquakes are just mental phenomena, ultimately speaking. And if we we if we can, if there is such a thing as the transfer of merit and so on, and it can happen from a distance, and and um, you know. Uh, well, that, that's physical, then of course there's a logical explanation there. But I mean, you talked before about Yogacara. I mean, this the implicit metaphysics no. here is a hardcore Yogacara metaphysics.
0: I, I don't know for sure, but I'm just speculating here. I, it sounds to me like actually what's more relevant in this example is that broader cosmology that we were talking about before of there being different realms and so forth. And certainly the Tibetans um, tend to believe that those sorts of phenomena, like physical things that occur like that, such as earthquakes and other natural disasters. Hmm. Deeply involve environmental factors which include unseen or beings which are not given to us empirically. Right? So it's not so much a pure like by reciting the sutra, you know, you're gonna kind of do something purely on a human mentalistic or consciousness level, kind of it's pure idealism in that sense. I'd say it's more about and it's pure speculation, but more about some kind of reciprocal interdependence with powerful beings who live in the earth or who, you know, I don't know exactly I'm not very good on all of those questions but it would be more about yeah, trying to smooth over a kind of deeper harmony like it's shamanistic or animistic is what I'm saying Yes,
1: exactly, and I I think you're absolutely right, but then I I fear that you're going to think me reductive by saying that I I frankly can only really appropriate that as a form of of folk religion, okay, and we're not dealing with philosophy at that point, we're not even dealing with metaphysics, we are dealing with religious beliefs and and, and, and metaphors and, and, you know, forms of edification and all the rest of it, and I, I don't know, you know, you, you probably won't entirely agree with me about that, but that's, that's where I'm going to have to leave that, I
0: think. Well, I'll just say one more point on that, which is, okay. if I was to contemplate, for example, indigenous culture in Australia... Mm. I could go and impose this view that what the, their relationship to the land is and broader ecology is just pure mythology, has no kind of real underlying um, reality. So it's kind of fictional, imaginational, it's mere blah, blah, blah. But to do so, I think would be to radically overestimate my own capacity to understand their culture. And to to impose upon them a kind of worldview which, you know, might not necessarily actually encapsulate at all what it means to be an Indigenous person connected with the land doing certain things.
1: I I think that's absolutely indisputable, sure, sure. But again, is it a a sidestepping?
0: No, I don't think so. I think what you're calling archaic or mere folk or religious belief of, say, Tibetans... You know, I think it's in the same category. I think actually their kind of relationship to the environment is radically different from ours. And I think actually theirs contains a lot of insight. They see things which we don't.
1: I I, I, I quite agree with you, but my point isn't pejorative. Okay, It's, it's, I suppose, ultimately speaking, you know, philosophical and epistemological. I mean, you know, there were a lot of people on the planet for a long time who believed that the Earth was flat. Okay, and and that was true for them, and they, there was whole mythopoeic structures of, of, of cosmology and belief that, that revolved around that. Okay, and that wasn't it wasn't that it was false. Um, it, it, it was it was just that it was only <laughs> restrictedly true in in, in in a literal sense. Okay, it was completely true in a phenomenological sense, in a cultural sociocultural sense, in a mythological sense. It was false in a, in a properly epistemological sense, and we now know that the Earth is round, and anyone who denies that the Earth is round is is, is, is committing fallacy, right? The, you know, I think we need to distinguish between between sociocultural, anthropological, phenomenological experience as being perfectly, you know, um, perfectly seamless within its own frame of reference, and, and the, the possibility of facts, the possibility of scientific facts, and they are different. And they're not the same, and it's very, mm-hmm. very dangerous to conflate them as such. But I think what happens in something like Buddhism, which is such a, a hold all, such a sort of vast sort of feel, a bag of, of, of ideas, is that things are conflated in that way. Um, and I think that we, there, is, there, we are. It is incumbent on us to to try and make those distinctions in 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 our own understanding of Buddhism. But if you don't mind, I I wouldn't mind
0: moving on. All right, we can leave. We can agree too. to disagree on that one. Well, I think I think
1: there's more. I think there's more agreement than disagreement, hmm. frankly. I mean, I'm I'm I, I am somewhat playing the devil's advocate here. Sure. But I think that actually we we're largely agreeing on the same things. What we're doing is we're hopefully fine tuning where the disagreement lies. So, <clears throat> moving on from karma, I've got a third question for you. Sure. Um, So if we grant that some or even all of the Buddhist metaphor posits are true and can be confirmed as such in meditation practice in the way that you suggested, is it possible that their apparent benefit to human life is exaggerated? (coughs) So what do people really gain by discovering, for instance, that intrinsic existence is impossible? That's a big big one, of course. But how would you cash out that benefit and in what terms?
0: I think a very firm distinction needs to be made between a mere intellectual. I'm going to sound like a real orthodox Buddhist. I'm sorry, but a, a mere intellectual mm-hmm. understanding of, of emptiness yeah. or lack of intrinsic existence, and mm-hmm. an actual direct experience of it.
1: Mm-hmm. And no, I mean the latter. I'm talking about the
0: latter. Yeah. Oh right. Well, you know. So what? The question is: to, uh, is it really not as beneficial?
1: Well, l- l- as well, no, no. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not um um I'm not leading the, the the question I'm not leading the witness I'm just suggesting you know let's say that they're true and let's say that um, uh, that they as we've suggested that, that they're totally um, confirmable as such um, what actually how do you cash out their benefit for a human being a, a finite
0: human being well to answer that assumes that you know I, I can I'm on the boomies or something which I'm not so, you know, I suppose we have to take as um, somewhere in some way authoritative. The notion that there is some categorical shift that occurs when someone steps onto the first Bumi and actually directly realizes emptiness for the first time. Now, the the problem is really that that's actually a very rare attainment. There aren't that many people Mm -hmm. around that have, you know, in this in any given generation, that are actually able to speak from that point of view.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So it means, you know, we're speculating about what kind of benefit might follow from achieving that. Who's mm-hmm. to say? I'd imagine it would be it would be rather beneficial, but I'm only guessing, mm-hmm. aren't I? Okay, that's fine.
1: So we can be clear that you're really guessing about that.
0: Yeah, I mean, um, you'd better probably better to ask, a, you know, a real body sufferer if, there, if such a thing exists, you know, that mm. they could answer that. These are the benefits. But...
1: but Okay, so that's fine. I mean, I'm happy to leave it there. But then again, we can say that uh, by the same token, um, you know, this is a major premise on on which praxis uh, starts. And, and yet we are essentially guessing about the, the benefit of the whole thing, whether we're talking about Nirvana or, or accessing high-level realizations. And oh, so on no and so doubt. That.
0: This is a huge problem of Buddhism per se. It's asking a ridiculously enormous undertaking for anyone who engages with it. I mean, we're talking (laughs) about doing something far more difficult than becoming even a brain surgeon or something like that. Okay. Well, I'm glad glad we can be straight about that. And like with the amount of work and and (laughs) diligence required to kind of get there is is absurd. It's ridiculous.
1: I quite agree. I mean, I think
0: I even said much the same in
1: my first answer to you.
0: So, Martin, what do you think the cost is? For those who adopt Buddhism from non-Buddhist cultures, broadly called Mm. Western Buddhists, what's the cost Mm. of them adopting wholesale and without much critical analysis all of the Mm. axioms and beliefs of particular traditional forms of Buddhism?
1: Yeah. Okay. So we have actually very much sort of gone through this to some degree when we were talking about karma just before, um, although we haven't completely addressed it. So yeah, um, my you probably can tell that my straight answer is that the cost is potentially very high. Um, Most of all, in that same earlier Heideggerian sense I mentioned, of failing to sustain the integrity of an authentic acquisition of any given truth, rather than its merely memetic and superficial reproduction. I think this is an obvious point and relatively uncontroversial. Now, that's also a philosophical point, I think. On the other hand, a religion per se, able to be adopted by a foreign culture as such, is not merely a catalogue of truths or even mythopoeic forms of absolute aspiration. Religion is, I would even say primarily, a socio-historical system of imminent edification, serving human, all too human needs and ends, and with all legitimacy. Okay? It's a cultural project. It's an intersubjective project of culture and social life. The same can be said of any religion still offering some dynamic traction on the universal need for belonging, for succor, a community of like-minded souls, all of whom fear death and all of whom need love. But from the philosophical vantage, that religious function is not sufficient, and a more nuanced hermeneutic as well as rational interrogation is still required if a metaphysical and not merely social edificatory truth is to be won. And that philosophical truth, as it was for Kierkegaard or Spinoza or any number of irreligious yet inherently religious thinkers, might well demand a deep revision or even repudiation of the prior terms of what taken is taken as significantly real. And in that case, philosophical revision is primary simply because there is no other discursive means for the renewal of primary truths. It's not as if shepherds or however virtuous or blessed they may be, um, you know, uh, carpenters or, or bricklayers are going to be able to provide that essential service of transhistorical intellectual continuity. And perhaps the worst enemy of any church is its decline towards ossification precisely where that renewal has been denied. I think this is as true for Buddhism as a religion as any other, though there are some philosophical inbuilt checks against this failure in the Buddhist insight into the illusion of intrinsicality, so that revisioning is almost guaranteed in it in a way that is often amiss in monotheistic or revealed religions. A fairly large answer to your question, but um, that's how it cashes out for me.
0: So let me just uh, paraphrase you there, are you saying that um, the primary cost is things become static? Uh,
1: if, if, if there is not that philosophical um, uh, guiding, I suppose, intellectual culture to, to provide new and um, revised and indeed enhanced um, forms of of, of thought. I mean, Nagarjuna did it in the second century, um, Tsongkhapa did it in the early 15th century, you know, Dogen did it in Zen in Japan. I mean, I, I, I think this is how religions evolve and grow and stay alive and vital. Um, and I think that if Western Buddhism, for example, is failing to do that and simply taking on an inauthentic, mimetic reproduction of traditional Tibetan forms, for example, then I think it doesn't have much of a future. Or at least it has a fairly it has it has a fairly kind of confused one.
0: Yeah, I, I tend to agree. Actually, I think um, there is a sense in which Western Buddhism is a bit backward-looking, and certainly in the academic world too. You know, there's a sense in which all of its treasures, all of what's great about Buddhism, is found in old texts, old masters, old periods. Mm and the best we can do is kind of go back there and do some archaeology or philology or translate a text or learn to parrot the arguments of an old thinker and there is a tremendous cost in doing that and the cost is we're not actually entitling ourselves to think productively and creatively about what's actually at stake in all of this so i I totally take your point on that point I think there's a few other things to consider, though. Um, There are other costs, certainly, I think, that we can see emerging at the moment, Mm. particularly, Mm. I think, American Vajrayana, maybe Mm. American Zen as well. There's kind of a me-too thing emerging there, which is pretty awful to look at. Mm. And I suppose the willingness of people to sit at the feet of people who proclaim themselves to be Rinpoche's or Tulkus or great Mm. masters Mm and then just sort of swear allegiance and get into all sorts of, um, mischief. Well, what's right. You know, like we're talking about reason. abuse and abuse yes. of um, oh. people who have a lot of power and who gain power yeah. by, you know, making false claims and so forth. That's all I think being aired at the moment. And it's mm-hmm. to me representing a rather a big failure of yeah. Adopting my right. critical analysis. Um, Going yeah, the other I way think... though, I suppose there's also something to be said about being too forward-looking and mm-hmm. not respecting mm-hmm. enough the connection with history and particularly lineage. I think people have that progressive mindstream can be a bit too dismissive of uh, the role of, of lineage in constituting new realities in, in the imminence of whatever reality we happen to inhabit.
1: Sure. Um, I, I think that's a judicious point.
0: Well, we're, we're agreeing, okay, something's not We're right. agreeing, <laughs> we're agreeing. Look, I think
1: it's also a good segue into my fourth question, which is another devil's advocate question. Do you sure. mind if, I, if sure. I move on? Okay, so my fourth question is, there seems to be a theoretical and existential disjunct between a number of Buddhist metaphysical posits, well, I'll take the example of non-self, and the phenomenology of subjective experience, that is, most people do experience themselves as unitary and unique subjects in some sense. Why do you think this disjunction exists, and is it possible that it indicates something other than the usual understanding of it? That is, that it is just an epistemic failure of ordinary, fallible beings which enlightenment corrects. Is it possible that, on the contrary, and I'm kind of going, to speak to you as a formal Nietzschean toad, is it possible that, on the contrary, the disjunction exists because some of the posits are simply imaginary, philosophical inventions with no real basis in
0: reality, that is that religious claims might well be manufactured. Well, I can only give my opinion on the matter and that is to completely invert the question. You know, so you're trying to give um, kind of some validity to the ordinary point of view and say, that's where we should anchor our notion of subjectivity. That's what really matters. And we should reject this kind of, um, or at least question this kind of view that comes through starting with the buddha and also the different buddhist sages and masters and philosophers that actually the ordinary point of view is profoundly deluded and needs to be questioned or unraveled deconstructed so that we find you know the anatman or non-self uh i, I firmly side with, with the buddhists on that question you know i think um no, no, no. you know the more the more i look at it you know the more i invest my time philosophically no. but also on the meditation cushion mm. the more mm. i uh, the more i think actually ordinary consciousness is profoundly problematic in so many ways and it's a poison that must be you know i feel like it's it's a poison that must be dispelled okay yeah that's, okay uh,
1: um, well look i it perfectly orthodox a response and i happen to agree with it but i think nevertheless it's often good to ask ourselves you know are we uh, are we actually barking up a completely illusory tree um, because I think that there might, might well be cases where that is very possible. I mean, let's 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 face that possibility. No?
0: Certainly, a very good idea to try and weaken all of the Buddhist rhetoric and polemics around this kind of question, because mm. so much focus, mm. so much analytical attention is focused on it that you know one can end up with a very uh, almost ideological view of Quite right. non-self, and that you know that's as much a mental construction as anything else. And right. But but underlying it, you know, the question is, is there actually any truth to the claim that there's no self to be found when you look? Well, I think the answer is, yes, it's absolutely a true claim. And it sort of follows that if you you pursue that wholeheartedly, um, many, many fruitful avenues open up. Are you saying to me that you have never
1: really struggled with the kind of Sankhya or Upanishadic, and early Buddhist debates about self, such that you know you 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 entertain the notion that there might be some uh, you know relatively um, formless and yet consistent self uh, or, or self reflexive subjectivity that in fact doesn't change and that maybe Advaita Vedanta for example might be true. I mean I've I've gone quite deeply into 20th century uh, Advaita through Ramana Maharshi and living in India and I lived in the ashram for a while and so on and I, I actually I'm I'm uh, I'm torn I'm torn I, I I fully take on board Buddhist non-self theory particularly on an intellectual level my meditative experience on the other hand drives me further and further into Advaita and it's a for me it's an interesting sort of um, dialectic going on. Oh, in my, right. in my
0: practice. Can I respond to that actually because. Sure, sure. I thought sure. with that question you were talking about a more, let's call it kind of empirical version of subjectivity. Um, on that more. Oh, about meditation practice as such? As right, a, as a on that point. more idealist level, um, <clears throat> mm. no, I, I, I have looked into that. And uh, you know, I remember reading Shankara not that mm. long ago. Mm. And um, you mm. know, Shankara, of course, was charged with being a crypto Buddhist. And uh-huh. my honest opinion is it's also much semantics on some level. Yeah, I agree. I'm sure i yeah. will be charged with heresy for that. But um, when we're talking about actual meditative experience of you know mm. the the kind of the quintessence of mind or whatever you want to call it, mm. Mm. whether you call it anatman or atman, actually I think it's mm. rather arbitrary. Semantic. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Okay. But then, but then that does beg a little bit of a philosophical question as to what what actually is it, right? I mean, you know, to me it feels like. Something that is both atemporal and and so in that sense permanent and and unchanging and um, if if any if there's a good word for that then Atman is a perfectly good signifier you know certainly non-self isn't what it's not like it's not an absence it's not a negation it's a it's a it's a felt experience right but, but perhaps we can I don't know perhaps we can leave that there I don't, I don't know do you, do you have I, more?
0: I'm really like? happy to leave that as a so okay. it becomes a problem when one enters philosophy. But it's not so much yeah. a problem when one's just dealing with uh, one's actual meditative experiences. Yeah. Okay, then. Well,
1: maybe we move on to question five.
0: Okay. So um, you've been in the terrain of philosophy for, what, how long? A number of... decade or two now? No, no. Six oh, years. Six years, right. Yeah. I'm wondering the, the degree to which... Um, committed Buddhists ought to be acquainted with particular non-Buddhist philosophers, particularly European philosophers. Do you think yeah. that's healthy and productive, and if so, which European philosophers do you think one should engage with or come to be informed by?
1: Okay, yes, totally, and I'll give you my prepackaged packaged spiel. Um, there are many possibilities that could provide equally as compelling syntheses of needed critical and productive thought. First, um, political theory. I would tend toward a much more politically nuanced and theorized Buddhist social theory, where a Marxist or post-Marxist Buddhism looms large. What does the absolute emancipatory Buddhist project imply for a relative or regional emancipatory project of political intervention? Also, um, second, and related to that, and just as urgently, a synthesis between non-self theory and a post-Hucodian archaeology of the historical constructiveness of various dynamics of self. Whether they be racialized, gendered, normalized, or pathologized self, and so on, seems to me essential and complementary to the insight that all such constructions are, by the same token, non intrinsic. But the relative side of non intrinsicality and how it is actually manifested is sorely lacking in Buddhist theory of non self. Um, similarly, Buddhist ethics can gain from an explicit understanding of the ethical and political interface of biopower and thanatopolitics, with Buddhist conservatism and sexism, particularly in view of the social anthropology of Buddhism in its coexistence with so many really heavily repressive Asian states. Um, I've had experience in Myanmar, also in Vietnam, and we can talk a lot about that. So finally, perhaps, a lot has been written on the Heideggerian points of convergence between ontic-ontological and authentic-inauthentic Dazai, in a way which seems still incompletely productive for Buddhist to truth theory, among other things. Um, And and now finally, a deeper engagement with philosophy of science generally, and technoscience in particular, seems to me an obvious interlocutor with the emancipatory project of Buddhist soteriology. That is, if the very notion of the human is already in deep flux, then what does an absolutizing doctrine of awakening from ontological illusion have to say about the ontology of the transhuman? It seems to me that there are literally hundreds of possible synthetic avenues of inquiry between Western, particularly continental theory, and um, Buddhism. The strange thing is that so few of them appear to be being taken seriously up.
0: Yeah, well said. It is, you know, to speak to some of those concerns, I think it is actually a structural, there was a structural reason behind some of those um, areas of comparison not gaining that Mm. much attention. There There was actually quite a lot of interesting work taking place more in the 20th century you know, yeah. the University of Hawaii and through Philosophy East and yeah. West and so forth. I think yeah. a lot of those threads have more or less run aground basically because to get funding these days, you can't really launch a project based on, well, let's look at, say, Nagajana and Heidegger and do a comparison. That's not going to fly for a, you know,
1: What can, what does um, institutionally fly, uh, would you say?
0: Well, things tend to need a kind of practical or applied orientation. So if you're looking at say, you know, something that might connect Buddhist ethics with AI, mm. you know, has very might have some kind of practical implication and that, you know, is likely to be funded.
1: Mm. Well, because, as presumably, presumably because AI is some kind of hard science technological research development program which which everyone recognises as being intrinsically important for human society?
0: Well it's more that, you know, you can potentially get outcomes from it. Whereas, yeah. if you're looking at, you know, Heidegger and, and Nagarjuna or something like that, you might get very interesting philosophical outcomes, but yeah. not yeah. outcomes yeah. in a way that the bean counters find very, very enjoyable to um, countenance. So yeah. Yeah, there's a structural yeah. shift that's taken place in the last few decades, which has precluded a lot of those very interesting threats. And I think it's a terrible shame, but maybe they'll emerge in other ways, you know, in more informal ways, or
1: can we point to the analytic elephant in the room here and and sort of ponder why it is that analytic academic philosophy has a perfectly flourishing relationship with academic Buddhism and seems to be basically um, monopolising the field?
0: Is that too much to say? No, I mean, it's, it's profoundly true. Um, right.
1: Well, why is that? What is it about analytic thinking as such that seems to trump continental uh, appropriations of Buddhist thought?
0: Well, you know, you really need to do kind of genealogies of um, Mm. how philosophy has taken place, especially in the Anglosphere. But it's spread beyond the Mm. Anglosphere Mm. in Mm. the last few decades as well. And, Mm. you know, it comes down to, yeah, it's a a genealogical consideration. It's just the history of what counts as legitimate or good philosophy in the last 50 to 100 years has Mm. been that Mm. branch. And increasingly, that's where all the jobs are. So if you're outside of that, you're going to be marginalised. And uh, you know, is there any good justification for that philosophically? I actually don't think so. But no, I agree. You know, what can be done about it? That's the nature of a kind of hegemony, I suppose. Once the hegemony is up and running, it's up and running, and it dominates. Yeah,
1: yeah. But uh, in a way, that's that's the very question at stake. So I mean, can I still get your thoughts though on what you might see as potential philosophical problems with an analytical um, um, hegemony of, of Buddhist you know, philosophical thinking, for example. I mean, can you see there being actual serious problems with that potentially in some way down the track?
0: Well, the big problem, and maybe this also applies to the continental, but I think especially with analytic approaches, is mm. you'd have to be fairly specialised and familiar with all sorts of technical jargon to even mm. countenance mm. Um, what's being read and published and written mm. and talked about. So mm-hmm. in other words, mm-hmm. you're only ever going. These philosophers are only going to be speaking to a very, very select, small bunch of people who are also trained in that kind of technical language. Yeah. And so its its chances of influencing anything beyond its own little sphere are very, very small for that reason.
1: But I, I think there's actually a, a, a properly philosophical corollary to that, which is even more more problematic. Um, which I think we've touched on before. Um, sorry to break in, but I but it seems to me that um, analytic, the analytic appropriation of Buddhist thought makes a very dangerous kind of um, what would you call it um, elision in bracketing in bracketing out the sense in which Buddhist thought is an intrinsically lived uh, yogic experiential social socio-cultural phenomenon and not just a metaphysical paradigm um, and and to the degree that it remains sort of put in, in the academic metaphysical ghetto. Um, it actually deeply misrepresents the whole nature of what is thought. I mean, maybe that's painting it with a broad brush, but what would you say to that?
0: Uh, I think that's largely true, but in the same breath, I also respect what's going on there. Like the, Absolutely, absolutely. The, um, I mean, Garfield's work, for example, I think is, is really excellent. And, As his priests, yeah, uh, I couldn't agree with you more. And the, you know, both of them have helped me tremendously transform my own understanding in ways which... You know I, yeah I'm incredibly grateful for so I don't want to devalue that approach or that work I'm talking
1: more about it as, a, as an overall project as such like like thinking in terms of decades or you know like the trajectory of, 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 of the philosophical genealogy that you're pointing to
0: I think I think yes I think it clearly needs to tend more in a phenomenological direction and mm-hmm. who's to say it won't you know I mean isn't it,
1: isn't it, isn't political theory really the 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 paradigm at stake for you in your own work? I mean, don't you see that a Buddhist political theory is a make or break uh, kind of proposition?
0: Uh, look, I, I see that as a very long-term project, and you know, it might it might start working well after I've passed away, you know, because there's yeah. so much work to be done. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yes, I do truly, um, I truly believe it's tremendously fruitful to to push Buddhism in that direction. Um, mm, mm. At least Buddhism at the university level in that direction. But um, mm, it's a huge mm, project mm. and, you know, it's going to require a lot of minds working very well to get any kind of traction on it. So Where there's a will, there's a way. Mm.
1: Okay. Well, look, thanks for that. Um, I wonder if I could throw at, throw at you a last question. Yep,
0: yeah, let's wrap it up with a, a last question, Martin.
1: Okay, mate. Well, my. Um, I fifth question was, in the 20th, 21st century, there are many issues for the self and its society which call for real concern and action. We could mention racism, sexism, uh, gender issues, socioeconomic inequity, structural violence, and so on. Do you think Buddhist metaphysical goals are apt responses to these ubiquitous problems? Is it possible that a Buddhist focus on non-self, emptiness, or even compassion is in all cases relevant to approaching these? Can such posits ever function as a universal panacea for intractable conflict? Should they, and is that what they are in fact designed for? Or do human cultures ideally need a context-specific, therapeutic, diagnostic approach to alleviating suffering, in which case universal religious claims, such as those of Buddhism, are in some real sense restricted, and perhaps in some cases even irrelevant to that end?
0: There's a lot of different questions going on within there, so um, I'll try and… they're a bit reductive. And yes sites um, the, the short answer is of course not in all cases yeah uh, I think Buddhist metaphysics can make a, uh, and ethics can make a huge contribution to political discourses and political action mm. and it should be on the table mm. but certainly should be on the table in the contest sorry, in the context of contestation with other kinds of frameworks. So, yeah. it's not ever going to be a universal panacea. Mm, um, mm, mm. It's going to be something which has something to contribute in the sphere of political contestation. And I think it's definitely yeah. the case that political theory and uh, political philosophy is Eurocentric. You yeah. know? And we, um, a lot of the cues come from the tradition of liberalism, which has now spread globally. Yeah. And also beyond that, you know, the socialist tradition, which has its roots in in Marx and and before Marx, but also clearly European in orientation. Some people make appeals to classical Greek and Roman political thinking. But generally speaking, even though we live in a globalised world, we don't tend to take seriously the ideas of India or China or other places as potentially useful and fruitful for resolving some of our political problems. And Absolutely. Uh, I, I think it's just unequivocal that um, that Buddhism offers many interesting insights, which are directly transferable to that realm of political contestation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I also just take a little bit of issue with what you, you, you framed Buddhism as kind of offering religious or claims grounded in kind of religious predication. Mm-hmm. I don't think that necessarily is the case. I think we're dealing more with claims about the nature of reality and the nature of human subjectivity, which are in the realm more of metaphysics, ethics, and moral psychology. philosophy. Yes, line.
1: but as such, they have universal extent, presumably.
0: Well, and, if,
1: and if they do, then presumably they apply across the board in every case.
0: Well, as an advocate for many of them, yes, I'll kind of argue for their universality, But in the Mm. same breath, as soon as I do that, I'm going to come up against, you know, 20 different competing claims, which will deflate the very logic of universality. Yeah. So it can't be universal in the sense, unless you want to kind of impose a global Buddhist theocratic order, which maybe might be tempting, but, you know, clearly is a fantasy, and I don't think even if I could choose it, I would choose it. Um, The fact that we're in a pluralistic context automatically implies that universality of Buddhism is not going to stand. Um, right.
1: Yeah. So does that then um, raise the question of whether, um, in fact, practically and theoretically, what we're actually talking about is a is a syncretic Buddhist um, pluralistic theoretical framework as well, like of necessity, um, and that any attempt to presume and preserve, uh, for example, an original, pure, authentic, um, true Buddhist theory, as such, is, is, is literally for the same reasons um, illusory false. I mean, that's a, it's a, it seems to me to be a, a quite, a, quite a strong distinction to make, that we have to make.
0: Well, yes, once you enter the terrain of the political, I think to some degree you're entering into the terrain of the political conditions of the times, and right. that necessitates kind of leaving the pure sphere of metaphysics, where all of those things can remain untouched, and encountering the messiness and contradictory forces of whatever reality happens to be there. Does Um, the same hold for ethics? Yeah, I think it does, you know, and I think actually the defining political struggle of these times is really one of capitalism or relationship with capitalism because that's the dominant condition. Yeah. And so the question really is um, what kind of relationship or what kind of um, politics might emerge from buddhist thinking and buddhist praxis engaging mm, with confronting yeah. being in tension with the logic of capitalism yeah. that really is a political moment for me in this sense and that's it hasn't really been countenance to a great degree either within the buddhist world or outside of the buddhist world excepting yeah. perhaps yeah. through the ten- 20th century where there were various marxist revolutions in southeast asia and china yeah. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. it has confronted these issues of political economy kind of in the very messy real world of the polis, but yeah, um, yeah, not so yeah. much on a theoretical level. And I think that's where it's there is actually something tremendously fruitful to be mm, cashed yeah. out and thought of. But, you know, <laughs> there's a lot of work to be done to do so.
1: Look, I, I couldn't agree with you more, and I think that's really well said. Yeah. And I, I would extend that to various forms of um, social, political issues as well, and um, issues of violence, issues of justified war, and, and, and a number of other things. I think it's a it's a it's an important issue.
0: No doubt. And um, maybe at a later date we'll get your insights into some of those questions, because uh, the listeners may not know, but Martin is just about to submit um, his dissertation on the ethics of killing within the context of, of Buddhist ethics. So. Yeah. I'm sure you've got a lot of interesting things to say, especially also with how it pertains to actual violence taking place, for example, in Myanmar where you've lived. Yeah, so. yeah, and also how it
1: pertains to many of the things that we've we've talked about today. So um, I'm really grateful, Toby, to the opportunity. Thanks very much.
0: All right, Martin. Uh, thanks very much for joining us. Hopefully, we'll have you back very soon. And mm-hmm. uh, stay tuned for more podcasts at aratehouse.com.au.